0: And so there will be people during the reign of Messiah who will not receive Jesus as Lord. You say that's virtually impossible. No more impossible than when he literally walked on the earth and he cared for people and gave sight to the blind and unstopped deaf ears and healed paralyzed limbs and fed hungry people and cast out demons and some still rejected him.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, When Heaven Comes to Earth, Part Two. Revelation 20 and verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Today, Pastor Carl will conclude his sermon as he preaches on the devil and his finale. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues.
0: And so his name is being mocked today. It is being used in vain. It is being dishonored. It is being walked over. But because he did what he did, God is going to honor the Son. For this reason, God highly exalted him and upon, bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Let me give a fifth reason for the millennium. In addition, he's going to prove his answer to our prayers. He's gonna prove his answer to our prayers. Throughout the ages, throughout the Old Testament, God's saints were looking for this coming kingdom that he had promised Israel. And when Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, in the Lord's Prayer, as we often call it, people get all tangled, oh, don't call it the Lord's Prayer, it's a model prayer. Look, that's just semantical. He taught us in the Lord's Prayer To pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And every early church member, just like all the church fathers who wrote after the apostles died, literally believed in an actual coming kingdom. Well, this is an incredible prayer request. Believers have been expecting, at least in the early centuries, not in this day of ignorance. Most people pray that they have no idea what they're praying. But the church had been praying that your will be done literally on earth, just like it's being done in heaven. Has he ever answered that prayer yet? No. Will he? Yes. Jesus would not ask you to pray something out of the Father's will. He is going to literally answer this. His kingdom will come, and his will will literally be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now there's another reason for the millennium, but we'll come to it in a moment as we walk through our passage, because it will better fit in there. But the first thing I want you to see is that for a thousand years the devil will have zero freedom. He'll be in this prison of sorts known as the abyss, but in the end he is going to be loose. So there's the devil and his freedom. That moves us secondly to the devil and his forces. The devil and his forces. Let's start reading again in verse seven. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So after being bound in this bottomless pit, he is released for a short time. Now you might be thinking, why on earth would God free the devil? Francis Schaeffer, theologian of former years, was asked that question. He said, well, if you can tell me why God released him the first time, I can tell you why he'll release him the second time. Well, obviously God had a reason because God is gonna do it and he may not spell it all out, but there's enough here for us to see that we can comprehend and follow. And what this will prove is that the devil is unredeemable, that the devil is irredeemable, that he's unrepentant, that he lives in a stubborn rebellion, that he thinks somehow in his twisted fallen way that he can usurp the power of the Messiah and in defiance he's going to gather this army of people to go against Jesus who's ruling upon the earth. Which brings us to the sixth reason for the millennium and that is to deprove the depraved nature of man. The millennium will show just what we are really by nature that we are depraved. When we speak of the doctrine of total depravity we're not saying that man is as bad as he can be but man is as bad off as he can be. We're not saying that he can't do good but he didn't, doesn't do good as he should. And the good that he does is often tainted by wrong motives and by his own fallenness. And so, what this thousand years will underscore is just how depraved we are. You know, people sing that hymn Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The man who wrote it saw himself as a wretch in his slave trading. We say, well, you know, I may be a sinner, but I'm not really a wretch, you know. But the more you grow in Christ, the more you see really what you really are by nature and just how fallen we are. And Paul, when he wants us to see how depraved we are by nature, strings together a number of Old Testament passages. And he writes this in Romans three, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And the thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth will show beyond a shadow of a doubt how true this is. With absolutely zero ability for Satan to deceive and to craft evil on the planet. With Jesus literally ruling on the throne in Jerusalem as God had promised by the prophets, as Gabriel affirmed to Mary at his incarnation, people will still reject Jesus. And so Satan will come out, the scripture says, to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the world. That anyone would respond really shows how depraved we are. You know, people sometimes say to me, well, you know, God knows I'm a good person. I follow my heart. And God would say the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The body of Christ recognizes as mature that indeed there is none righteous that by nature we do not seek God. And if you sought God as a little boy or girl, it was only in response to the Spirit of God working in your heart first, probably largely due to the prayer of your parents or maybe your grandparents. But what I want you to see is that Satan is not in control of the abyss. And by the way, he's not even in Hades yet, and he's not even in the lake of fire. People will have this view of Satan that, you know, he's down in the flames of hell on this devil suit with a pitchfork and he's poking people and getting them to shovel coal and all this. No, he's not even in the uh, Hades, he's not in the lake of fire, he's not going to someday when God opens the lake of fire to the devil and his fallen angels and all the lost people of all time. He won't be in charge, Adonai will be in charge. God will be the king of hell, not Satan. So when we come here to verse 8, it's important that we ask and answer two critical questions. First, who will Satan be deceiving? And then secondly, why would anyone choose to follow him with Jesus reigning on the earth? So first, let's think this through for just a moment. Who is it that Satan will be deceiving? Now, again, I've told you that in millennialism, they think there's just one big judgment, there's no literal kingdom, and God will separate the lost from the saved, and that's it. But if you've been studying with us in this series, you know that's impossible. In fact, there's a number of resurrections and judgments. The first one we studied was the church saints at the rapture. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every saved person will give an account as a saved person to see how he's rewarded in heaven. And it will largely have to do with how you serve the local church. People ask me all the time, like someone just asked me over the weekend, can I become, can I have a place of service in the church without becoming a member? And I said, no. They said, why not? Because the New Testament teaches membership when the Bible says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they give watch over your souls. If you're not willing to be accountable to your leaders, if you're not willing to be accountable to the congregation who congregationally exercise church discipline, Matthew unfolds for us. If you're not willing to plant yourself in a local church where you employ your gift in serving one another, then it's one of three things. You're either in ignorance, you don't know this is something you should do, or B, you're in between churches, and I get that, people are looking for churches, but it shouldn't take more than a month or two to find one. Or three, you're living in disobedience. And why would I want a disobedient Christian to serve in the church? Because a disobedient Christian is not filled with the Spirit. And so there's the church saints that are caught up and evaluated. The Old Testament saints at Christ's second coming. We just read that from Daniel 12.2. Tribulation saints are raised at this time. We just read that in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. We studied a few weeks back how all the living Jews will be raised up at this time uh, or evaluated at this time. Those Jewish people who survived the tribulation, they will stand before Jesus and separate it true israel versus false israel and we saw when the scripture says all israel will be saved is not what people are making it out to be all israel in paul's mind is all true israel those who are born again and so they're separated and then all the living gentiles are separated out we saw that the the judgment of the sheep and the goats and it's based on how they treated the jewish people which give evidence of whether or not they've been born again or not there won't be anti-semites in heaven Anti-Semitism in the New Testament is a mark of lostness. And if a Christian takes on anti-Semitism like any other sin, you better look out because God will discipline you. He'll take you to the shed. Then there's the resurrection and judgment of the Antichrist and the false prophet. That happens at the second coming. That reverse rapture that we spoke of. And then a thousand years after the second coming, all the lost of all time are raised up and judged. And we'll see why. Why does God wait a thousand years? We're going to see why, God willing, in this series. And so these judgments are very clear. Here's a couple of pictures. Here's a picture of medieval art, and this is Roman Catholic art. Christ is on his throne and he separates the lost and the right here into the lake of fire and the saved enjoy heaven. Just one big judgment. And this is what it looks like again in the next chart on our millennialism. Uh, The church, they say, has replaced Israel. God is done with the Jewish people. And so one leader in our country said, the fact that Israel became a nation is no more significant than Uganda having their independence. The next event is the second coming, but there's no kingdom on earth, one general resurrection, one general judgment. You just have to spiritualize the text to no end and you distort its meaning. Now, who are these people and why are they rebelling? Remember Matthew chapter 13, it says, the son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. Matthew 13 concerns the kingdom parables. Matthew 12 represents the official rejection of the leaders of Israel that Jesus is their Messiah. And so in Matthew 13, Jesus answers the question, well, what is God going to do then for Israel? And he makes it clear that he hasn't canceled the kingdom. He has simply postponed it. But when he comes back at the second coming, there'll be no unbelievers that will enter it. We studied this some weeks back in Matthew 24. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. This is in reference to the second coming. At the rapture, you don't wanna be left behind because that means you're an unbeliever. But at the second coming, you want to be left behind. Now, Hal Lindsey creatively said, this is the rapture. It has nothing to do with the rapture. He sold books on sensationalism. He was a serial adulterer, married four times, and confronted by some of my own friends. We used to use him as an illustration at Dallas Seminary of how not to teach the Scriptures those who are left are analogous to what happened in noah's day noah and his family are left to enter into a brand new world and those who are alive at the great flood they're carried away into judgment and so at the second coming unbelievers are removed from the kingdom every stumbling block And the only ones who enter into the kingdom are those who are believers. And this is what we call the premillennial view. And again, as this chart shows, that's what the church fathers, they were a group of men who wrote after the apostles. We have tons of their writings. They taught that when Jesus comes back at the second coming, he will literally raise Old Testament saints, tribulation saints will be raised, surviving believers will enter the kingdom, and he will rule and reign for a thousand years. That's what they taught. They taught there would be a literal tribulation period followed by a literal second coming where Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years. So in the broadest sense, there are two kinds of believers who enter into the kingdom. Now don't miss this. This will be important for you to understand what we call a pre-tribulational rapture. Two kinds of believers that will enter the kingdom. Those who survive the tribulation and they enter in their natural bodies and those who will enter in their resurrection bodies. Now, in a resurrection body, the Bible says, Jesus said, we'll be like the angels. We don't become angels, but we're like angels in that we neither marry nor are given in marriage, and we don't procreate. We don't have children. And so notice, that's the theological backdrop to verses 7 and 8. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are on the four corners of the earth. Now, think this through. When Christ comes back to finish our salvation... We receive a resurrection body. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We call that justification. We are being saved from the power of sin. That's called sanctification. We will be saved from the presence of sin. That's called glorification. For our citizenship, Paul wrote, is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. In other words, we'll be like Jesus. We will never sin again once our salvation is completed. John says that when he appears, we will be like him. Why? Because we will will see him just as, because we will see him just as he is. We'll be like him, resurrected. When you make a choice to receive Jesus as Lord, God puts an eternal hook in you by that choice where you are eternally secure, and when your salvation is complete, you will never sin again. Yet here at the end of the thousand years, we got this massive rebellion. Who are these people? These are those who entered into the kingdom in their natural bodies. So who will Satan be deceiving? Not the first generation of tribulation saints and Jews who entered into the kingdom in their natural bodies. Because once you're saved, you're always saved. You can't lose it. But they're going to have children and grandchildren. Look, my wife and I, our marriage started will be 43 years ago in June. just her and I. We've got 25 in our tree now. And it it's still growing. If I somehow got saved during the tribulation and married Audrey, and I lived for a 1,000 years, I'd have a lot of kids. I mean, we'd have a lot of grandkids. We'd have a lot of great-great-grandkids. Look, just because I'm saved doesn't mean my children are saved. God has children. He has no grandchildren. And so there will be people during the reign of Messiah who will not receive Jesus as Lord. You say that's virtually impossible. No more impossible than he, when he literally walked on the earth and he cared for people and gave sight to the blind and unstopped deaf ears and healed paralyzed limbs and fed hungry people and cast out demons and some still rejected him. Now he will rule with a rod of iron during this time and man will submit to it outwardly but inwardly he'll still have to make a decision And so he will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the world. The world will be repopulated. They're compared to like the sand of the seashore. Wow. Now, think with me further. He says here, Gog and Magog, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them together. Now, if you remember early in this series in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we studied the war of Gog and Magog. Here's a chart. We saw the principal player is Rosh. It's Russia, Iran, and Turkey, and there's two other nations. It's a total of at least five nations. Some of those could be subdivided. You could come up with more than five, but basically five regions, biblically speaking, that are going to attack Israel. This is not the same battle. This is an entirely different battle. In fact, here's a chart that will remind you that there's three coming battles. There is the battle of Gog and Magog. It concerns a handful of nations that will go against Israel. I take it, it could happen before the rapture, but I think most likely it will happen after the rapture. We know it happens at the very end of time, before the millennial reign of Christ. So it's somewhere in that time frame. I would argue shortly after the rapture, and it would be a setup for the rebuilding of the temple. have got a whole message on that if you're interested. That's different from the Battle of Armageddon, that Revelation 16. St- uh, describes it happens uh, in conjunction with Christ's return. And that's different from this battle of Gog and Magog that happens at the end of the thousand years. So three different battles. And of course, you don't want to twist and mix those up. Now, I think it's interesting. You can literally remove Gog and Magog and it doesn't change the meaning of the text. And uh, the devil will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth to gather them together for the war, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So while we can tell from scripture that this is a distinct event, I think it has taken on some symbolic meaning. Kind of like Armageddon, you know, someone just last week, I heard them on the news, You know, they described what we've seen in Turkey and Syria, now 50,000 people dead. This Armageddon-like disaster, the person reporting there from Turkey. And so Armageddon is kind of a catchword for any catastrophic event. Well, this emblematically will be similar to the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel because it's against Israel and it's against Israel's Messiah, Jesus, who's literally ruling on the throne. Look at verse nine, I'm almost done. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. You know the beloved city, it's Jerusalem. So they circle the city, they encircle it to attack Jesus and his saints who are ruling from Jerusalem, which brings us quickly to the devil and his finale. So beyond the devil and his freedom, and the devil and his forces, there's the devil and his finale. Now, again, if somehow the post-tribulationist was right and we're here for the tribulation and we go up at the end of the seven-year period and we come down, then everybody is in a resurrection body and nobody can sin. So the amillennialist just throws out the whole millennial kingdom. But if you believe there's a kingdom and the promises to Israel are unconditional in nature, you can come to no other conclusion but a pre-tribulational rapture. That's the only way you can have sin at the end of the thousand years. Are you following that? You get it? There's many, many reasons why the scripture teaches a pre-tribulational rapture. So here we are, the devil and his finale. Verse 10, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And notice, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Not one shot is fired. Not one sword is unsheathed. Suddenly the sky bursts with a ring of flame and it comes down and it's over. Immediate judgment, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan will be in the place where notice the Antichrist and the false prophet are. How long have they been there? A thousand years. So I was witnessing recently to a Jehovah's Witness. He said, well, unbelievers who go to hell, they're annihilated. I said, now here's an illustration of two people who have been in the lake of fire for a thousand years and they're still very much alive. We'll come to that. How can we apply this text of scripture? Number one, first there's a lesson for us here concerning our fallenness. There's a lesson concerning our fallenness. Under the theocracy of Jesus with Satan bound in the abyss, people will do what they did with Jesus the first time. Many of them, like the sand of the seashore, will reject him. You say, that's almost inconceivable. No, it is a reminder of how fallen and depraved man is. Secondly, there's a lesson here about God's ultimate victory. There's a lesson here about God's ultimate victory. Now, God will certainly never take away your free will. And while Jesus outwardly rules with a rod of iron, inwardly people have to decide... And based on how you decide will determine whether or not you share in this victory. The good news in the end is that God wins. And if you've been saved, you'll be on the winning side. You know, when I look around and I see people today whose lives are so messed up. I mean, as a pastor, I deal with messed up people every week. And with compassion in my heart, I say, there go I, but by God's grace. And with a sense of victory in perspective, I say, a hell z could be changed. A hell z could be forgiven. The person who's on his fifth marriage could be forgiven and receive a fresh start God can change the drug addict. God can change the the person who fornicates with women everywhere. God can change the person who has no care for the things of God. But God will ultimately be victorious, and we'll see more of that victory next time. Finally, there's a lesson here about man's need to believe. I mean, this world is messed up and it's not getting better. But I know we're on the winning side if we have believed. Have you received him? Here we see these people with hard hearts who say, Pastor, how can a person's heart get hard? By saying no to Jesus. This is the judgment that the light is coming to the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Every time you choose evil, you're hardening your heart. And if you do it long enough as an unbeliever, you won't be able to hear at some point. The devil will be given permission to take the seed, Jesus said, that they may not believe and be saved. Today is the day of salvation when you hear the message Don't harden your heart. Father, thank you for this text of scripture that you've given to your people for us to read, to study, and to be changed by. I pray that we would see people as you see them, that we know you've saved us out of our depravity and in your mercy, you've given us a righteousness that we could not earn. You've planted the spirit in us that we could be changed. Help us, our Holy Father, to walk in newness of life. Help us to have compassion on the people that we see and encounter every week. Some who seemingly have it all together, but they are headed for an eternity without you. I pray today for someone within the sound of my voice who's unsure of their salvation, that they would understand that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners that he came to seek and to save that which is lost, that whosoever will may come, that whoever will call on the name of Yeshua will be saved. Help someone to say, Jesus, save even me.
1: We ask it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. If you enjoy today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program... God's Prophetic Schedule 026. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.